This is David Marler, UFO researcher, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. I want to ask John... uh NASA are now launching their own, albeit with very small funding, independent investigation into UAP. What is your take on, in 2022, NASA getting further involved in the study of UFOs? Welcome to the club. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not only facetious. Until very recently, in fact, until I guess Bill Nelson took over as the administrator, their position has been overtly hostile to these areas. Now, this doesn't mean that you didn't have astronauts and individuals who had some interest, and, but as an institution, they were very, very negative on the topic. And that's unfortunate. I think now the evidence has become overwhelming, and they're kind of following suit because of what DOD is doing. Now, do not believe that because part of defense as the UAP task force or that, that that is widely accepted. There are plenty of people in there who just, it's like Project Blue Book and the Condon Report. The idea of the Condon Report, putting it out, was to make this go away. You know, we just don't want to deal with it. And I can understand why. I think there's a pretty good reason. Um, I, you know, I, I've said in other venues that, you know, I, I think the phenomena we're dealing with are more complex than cancer. So the point is, when you're going to put a small amount of resources against it, what's your probability that you're going to be able to come up with, you know, definitive answers? I think DOD has a role to play, but not the role. Uh, it is far bigger than anything. Now, I think their role is twofold. One is how do these things interacting with their platform, planes, and that. And two, they bring sensor systems that can make recordings that are not generally available to the public. So, from a scientific perspective, that's interesting. Uh, but if you're the steward of resources, how much are you going to spend? towards solving a problem that really is not a significant problem to you. With you know, we, We've just come out of 20 years of armed conflict. And what percent of your resources are you going to put on this, on something that you have a very low probability of uh, understanding? The other aspect that is non-trivial is the back to belief systems, but it's this religious thing that this is the work of the devil, it's demonic and all that. And that's not trivial. And we've seen that. That was prevalent in the uh, remote viewing program as well. 
I know that Lou Alessandro has had contact with senators. Some of them will say, you're doing God's work and all that, and the others, you're going to go to hell. <laughs> you know, they're not supposed to deal with this. You mentioned Bill Nelson, the NASA administrator. Now, in his previous role within government, he was briefed on the UAP subject, and he seems to be friendly to the subject as well, which is which is great. NASA already would have, one would presume, a lot of very good data using those sensors you mentioned and those recordings. Is that something you think that people in the UAP task force or the AOIMSG are going to get access to, that historical data? Frankly, I doubt it. And one of the problems is just, you know, the amount of data. This is a problem we had with something called OZIM, open source intelligence. It's just the pure volume of information available, knowing what you're looking for and where to go find it. Because remember, what you're talking about are generally anomalous events. In other words, things that happen for a short period of time that may or may not have been recorded. They didn't interact with some system that probably didn't get recorded at all. We can talk about some of the ones that the Department of Defense looked at. But um, you know, how much are you going to, again, spend resources again? All of these things from a funding perspective are a zero-sum game. So my point there is if you're going to study these things, Personally, I think you should. But if you're going to do that, what are you not going to do? I get you. And like you say, they're, they're very, very small amounts in the grand scheme of things when it comes to budgets and amounts that are generally throwaway sums of money that aren't going to be missed to, to make something go away or at least find nothing to pursue. Well, what, what uh, with Blue Book, I mean, Air Force just wanted to make it go away. We do not want to commit. You know, we, the officers who had, even though it was part-time job for the vast majority of them, uh, but they had to take reports and train and all that. Just make that go away. What you're looking at from a pure business perspective, what's the return on investment? And when you're dealing with phenomenology, the probabilities are actually pretty low. Have you yourself, John, ever had any interesting conversations with those former astronauts or people at NASA about the UFO subject that they've just not been comfortable coming forward with? Oh, we got to remember Ed Mitchell was a uh, personal friend. Sort of got boards together and had lots of discussion. Uh, the one area that we agreed to disagree on, I think, was Roswell. But uh, that another one who said he would come forward and talk to Story Musgrave, who had spent a considerable amount of time in space. Um, and also interestingly, he was one who was more involved in you know some of the black program, like what are the cap satellite capabilities and maintenance and things like that. But he was very open to having these discussions. I want again, to you're, but but you're back. The, the difference here again is the personal interest versus institutional responsibility. And what Nelson is doing is saying, you know, institutionally, we agree to take this on, albeit, you know, see, if you're going to go to Mars, you only want to return to 
to uh, the moon and then step onto Mars and that. So if you're going to do that, you're going to commit a lot of resources. By the way, the Apollo program, when it was up, was uh, 4% of the uh, uh, budget, government budget at the time. Uh, right now, NASA is closer to about 0.4%. So you're talking about mm. a tremendous amount of increase. So you've now got to go to the public and make the case that says, if I'm going to study this, you know, here's why we're doing it and how it ought to be of interest and what the potential return on investment is. And do you think there's an issue with the timing right now of, of this because the public are seeing rising prices on fuel, electric, gas, food, and obviously the Ukraine-Russian crisis? that it's an easy way to make a subject like this potentially go away again because yeah. the general public aren't going to be up for yeah. it, are they? I'm not sure what you're paying for a litre for petrol in the UK right now, but uh, our gas across the board here is you know over $5. We use gallons, of course. But, um, yeah, that, that's what people worry about. We're around about £2 a litre at the minute almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's expensive. It's almost double what it was a year ago, uh, over a year ago. So it's uh, it's pricey. And and I've had this conversation with colleagues and friends of mine about how in the UK can we push this conversation forward. And I, I've made the point, unfortunately, right now, the general public don't want to have a conversation about UFOs and the what might be because they care about the, the gas and electric prices going up again, we're hearing in October and January. And the cost of cost of living, so the conversation just falls so far down the pecking order. Well, the difference is between yeah, I'm interested, I'm willing to talk about that, versus not only am I willing to talk about that, I'm willing to pay for it too. And how do you see that changing? Is that going to have to then be a private organisation investigating, like the Galileo Project, seeking third party funding? Or again, is it going to be a case of a lot of different things have to fall into place well, at the same time? again, what I have stated and stated repeatedly, what we're looking at is at least as complex as cancer. So you start multiplying the amounts of money that we put into that, into hundreds of millions of dollars to billions in, in that research. And yeah, we've made you know, substantial increases in many areas, but we certainly haven't cured cancer by any stretch of the imagination. So if you're looking at a problem that's that complex, uh, you know, the few millions that we're putting into this research, interesting, you will probably make some advances. Um, yeah, no, I, I, well, I'll tell you, I have slides that, that I've talked about how I think it needs to be approached, digression, let me know. But I said, what you ought to look at is the Human Genome Project. And that's one where you had billions and billions of uh, possibilities. Well, the difference there is we had international cooperation. You did have the best and brightest, many universities involved. And the key issue is data sharing. Because the problems with phenomena now is having data in whatever area you're working on 
is the thing that's probably going to be directly attributable to whether or not you continue funding and you keep, you know, they're competing for the same minuscule funding sources. Uh, so until we say, if we're going to say this is serious, we ought to look at it, then I would look at, you know, and the answer with the human genome problem is they came ahead of schedule and uh, under, under budget, really unique for huge scientific ventures these days. But I think that's um, the approach that you've got to take. And again, the issue of data sharing is absolutely critical. Before we get on to listener questions, John, I want to ask you about the, the U.S. hearings that take, have taken place in the last couple of weeks and months um, and also some of the legislation that may be coming in and we're getting updates on that almost daily at the moment. Um, f- for yourself, a few things to cover then. Is there any one particular or any departments particularly that you would have testify in a hearing and who would they be? I have no idea. And the problem here is it gets so emotional. Um, in the United States, we worry more about having our guns than children. Uh, it is just absolutely tragic. I'm firmly in belief that uh, you know weapons of war have no basis and ought to be in civilian society. My pet response to most of them is, oh, the gun was, okay, how about nukes for everybody? You know, let's just go on. Now, I don't know how you're going to change America, and I don't use any one institution to do it. And uh, I can say our Congress does not have the intestinal fortitude to uh, even begin to take on the fellow. Yeah, they did. There's a gun rights bill that just went through, but they're nibbling at the edges. I mean, you really need to uh, take away or do something like Australia and uh, I think New Zealand or somebody got really serious. Uh, and that's a buyback program to say we're going to take them off the street. In the U.S. today, we have more guns than people. I mean, literally, the ratio is higher than one to one. And um, contrary to where they want to go, they say, well, we got mental health. And, Unless we are crazier than the rest of you in the world, you know, that is just not an excuse for what's going on. It's the gun, so. And as we record this interview, uh, just in the last couple of days, it's looking like there's going to be language in the upcoming NDAA for 2023 that's going to clear the path for those with non-disclosure agreements to come forward and speak without fear of reproach on the UFO subject. Do you think this is a course of action that's going to get people openly testifying again, or is it still a potential dead end? I don't think there's that much. I mean, they could frankly wave a wand. Now, there are legitimate reasons for classification of some of the UFO data. And specifically, that has to do with protection of the capabilities of the sensor systems. Because you don't want to tell a potential adversary what you can see and what you can't see. And there's real anomalies here. But you know, having said that, we are getting it. But there are ways to sanitize the information and get it out. 
I think among the things just is what's the prevalency uh, of the interactions uh, that they're seeing. And the other problem, of course, is from a government perspective, I mean, that's this much of it. This is a global issue. People are having these interactions as well. What the government does bring to the table, again, are really advanced sensor systems, and in some cases, brain power, if they want to do that. But that's what I think we should do, is get the best and brightest involved. Why do you think you mentioned those other countries that the US leads the way in the UFO conversation right now? Because outside of the US, it seems relatively quiet. We've just had the civilian hearings in Brazil. The UK, uh, as a country, it, the conversation is almost non-existent, unfortunately, still. Why do you think the US is still at the forefront of the conversation? I, I don't, I'm not sure I'd agree with that. And if you look at you know what's been reported from the reports that the UK in particular has released, but you look at other, other governments, a, a lot of it in Brazil, in Chile, uh, other countries around the world. Uh, I think there, many of the officials are worried about the giggle factor, which is still, you know, unfortunately uh, prevalent. Uh, so I don't think we're leading it. I, I think what you are seeing has more to do with the amount of mass media uh, that we have. And it has become more popular. So the problem with that is you get a phenomenal amount of crap uh, that, that comes along uh, with this as well. So one of the issues is discerning what's real and whatnot versus rumors that run rampant. One of the downsides of uh, classification has been that if you can't see into the box, then the public makes huge assumptions about what could possibly be there. Unfortunately, most of them are wrong. I point out back when when we were doing the study, uh, which is 1980s, the vast majority of the information, even about things the government had seen, was in the public domain. Uh, what was not there, again, gets back to how did you get it and how good are those sensors? I've heard you, John, on a previous interview uh, say that we aren't at the point of even asking the right questions or knowing what the right questions are. If you did have one question that you could ask and get answered, what would that be? I, I have no idea. I really don't. I get asked that a lot. Not just one question, but the last line of my UFO book that I wrote said, we are at the front end of the phenomena. We're not having even, I don't think, defined what these phenomena are. We're not at the point of asking the right questions yet. Um, now, one of the key issues from my opening slides that I use at all briefings and it covers many of the topics that we, we've talked about here. But from UFOs being one, of course, the abduction phenomena, uh, remote viewing, psychokinesis, and lots of work there, uh, firewalking, uh, post-mortem communication. Uh, I 
communicating with the dead, life after death, etc., etc. Even interspecies communication, particularly Sasquatch or any of them. It's my belief that these things are all interrelated and that consciousness is the key component. We go back to Max Planck, who addressed this and said, you know, consciousness is primary. Now, there's a whole brain-mind continuum and debate that's going on. It's popular to think that the mind generates consciousness as opposed to maybe consciousness generates the mind and generates all physical things after that. We're still looking at quantum physics. I'm now looking at quite differently than we have in the past. I do not believe that the brain and the mind are, are the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. So we're going to have to come to a better understanding of consciousness. Um, I also end some of my uh, talks with it says, this does get maybe a bit political, but it says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And I, you know, we keep talking about globalists. You know, as being, you know, again, from a political perspective, a terrible thing globally. My notion is if you're thinking globally, you're thinking too small. That what we're dealing with is universal. And uh, yeah, these interactions, what you do, you know, can harm others. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising, with 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them? Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. John, I've got a lot of interest in listener questions and I want to try and get some of these answered from you if you don't mind. So we'll we'll bounce about a little bit with the listener questions here. Uh, and apologies if I've not got to yours because a lot of them were sent and so maybe we'll get John back on in future to answer some more of those. Uh, John, the first question was from Tim. Uh, Tim asks, do you believe the Wilson memo is legitimate? If so, why would Admiral Thomas Wilson refer to you as dishonest? Uh, you don't have to talk to others about that. I, I don't even know how to address it. Uh, I know Wilson has said it didn't happen. But... Do you believe it did? Uh, I, I don't know how to address that. I wasn't there, certainly. I know Eric. 
And yeah. again, I, I was surprised to see that actually introduced in the congressional hearing. So, uh, is but, that pl- pleasantly surprised? I, I I was surprised that uh, because the guy brought in some other things, it was totally wrong on at the same at the same time. So he did bring up the Malmstrom instrument and, and talked about ten missiles being shut down. I was surprised that. Uh, Odie and I did not know about the incident. They've not done a very good job from a historical perspective. But it wasn't 10 missiles that were shut down. In fact, with Bob Salas and Beta Giant, uh, which you found there that they had six to eight of their missiles shut down. I think that was Echo Site, but they called back to headquarters. November Site was down 10 for 10, so it's even greater than that. And is of great significance. If you understand the nuclear triad, you're dealing with things of strategic importance. Uh, and I also point out that um, Soviets, Soviets at that time, had other incidents that were similar, but interactions with their nuclear facilities that were uh, equally scary. A question from Luigi. Luigi asks, uh, you've said that Roswell was a secret project. Is this speculation or informed knowledge? I don't understand the question. Uh, So your your opinion on Roswell, obviously I've not got Luigi here to ask him to to reframe the question. Uh, That's the wording, but uh, what's your opinion on the Roswell crash? Well, I'll give you my take, uh, and this is one that gets me into trouble because no matter what you do, the data from Roswell never all fit. Having said that, A, I am sure an incident happened. B, I'm equally sure that it was ours. And yes, it was super, super, super secret. And uh, I understand that. And it has been explained. It has interesting. And the material, the secret materials, um, talked to Bill Burns about this. I saw him on a program, and they had one where they brought in some thin films, and they set it down, and they had two people. One of them was Jesse Marcel Jr., who I think was absolutely straight arrow. And there was another staff sergeant who we believe had their hands on the material. And they walked in and said, have you, you know, do you see the material here? And they both went, yes, and pointed to the same thing. And it absolutely existed in 1947. So in your opinion, it was very much U.S.-led. It, it was yeah. a... Secret project. Absolutely of strategic importance. And yes, the material at uh, uh, Fort Worth, the Dallas Fort Worth, was switched uh, because they knew that the Soviets would be watching. This had to do with, I'll tell you what it was. It was the critical issue at that time was when are the Soviets going to pop their first nuke? Because until that time, we were the only one that had a nuclear weapon. And it was absolutely imperative that we understand when they had crossed that threshold because it 
changes the geopolitical sentiment of the world. And uh, it, it had to do with sensor systems. That, uh, that's what they were looking for. Question from Jean-Francois. He says, Mr. Alexander, uh, you've said that you are 98% sure the US government is not in possession of non-human technology. Can you elaborate on this? That's fairly definitive. Um, I've seen the stuff on metamaterials, and the problem with almost all the samples I'm familiar with is the provenance. In other words, where did it really come from? And a lot of work being done looking at some things that have interesting characteristics. Uh, what I am 100% sure of is we have not done reverse engineering and are flying, you know, craft around or interspace or, you know, any place else, uh, intergalactic travel or in there. And my point is that if we understood UFOs to that point, flying things around would be relatively trivial. The point there, and you know what, what we discussed earlier, energy. You would have to understand a fundamental different source of energy, and that changes the world. And you do not see that. And the other thing is, even if you have zero point energy, whatever you want to look at, if you look at what is taking to integrate, you know. Uh, solar energy, uh, electric cars are a great one that's coming along now. It's going to take decades to actually integrate that to where it becomes standard, uh, universally available and all that. So if you had some other energy source, if I had a pound of unobtainium, you could get a, you know, a million miles per pound, you couldn't put it in your car. Yeah. <laughs> it, it wouldn't turn the, the crankshaft. So there's so much that goes beyond that. And so I'm absolutely sure that we have not seen those sorts of things and make those kind of advances. We change the geopolitical situation and do a lot towards stability in the world, actually. Uh, absolutely. A uh, question from the Tree of Life. What phenomena from uh, Mr. Alexander's time working with Stubblebine's psychic spies stood out most to him? And also, what's your take on the mechanics of spoon bending? Excuse me. No, you're okay. Uh, yeah. I think the spoon bending at first, we don't understand how it works, period. What I can tell you is that psychokinesis does work. The closest that I heard of that made a lot of sense, if you know Bob John would be in the Dean School of Engineering at Princeton. And we were in a meeting, I think it was actually at uh, the Office of Naval Research at, at the time, and these sorts of things came up. And what they're saying, and again, it gets back to a consciousness thing, or that what you're doing is information, because one of the questions that comes up is, where does the energy come from? If you were assuming that, uh, energy can either be created or destroyed. So where's the energy that makes it bend? And he says, well, I think it's simpler than that. 
what's actually happening is it's the information that tells the spoon to be a spoon, and that changes and allows the spoon to move. What was the other question? The first part of it was what phenomena from your time working with Stubblebine's psychic spies stood out most to you? No, and I'll go back to my comment again when I'm doing presentations, and that is that these are all interrelated, and that uh, consciousness is obviously fundamental to all of it. That consciousness idea is one that I think more and more people yeah, like to discuss now that it's, you know, again, that connectivity between people. You've mentioned the universe and everything being yeah. connected would, would certainly make a lot more sense. Uh, question from Nathan. He asks, if you could go back and change how we study this phenomenon from the beginning, how would you change things? Or could we change things to study it in a more efficient way? I, again, that's that's a really tough question. I'm not sure you would change it, but you have to look at, as these things progress, you've got to understand this is a constant progression. And so things are built one on the other. And so it's not until you start to understand pieces of it that you say, oh, I would change something else. So if you went back and changed it fundamentally back here, I'm not sure that would have helped. Uh, at all, that, that this is uh, science and whatnot is actually a process. And that um, I'll, I'll get very political here. Um, one of the things I was concerned about in the Middle East is when we started talking about we're going to create democracies. And it's, you know, now, democratization is a process, there are certain steps that you have to go through in order to create the democracy have achieved that. I think the same thing is true in many of these science issues. There are certain steps that you've got to go through to get there. You can't just you know, jump and make quantum leaps to, to the end product without understanding it. I'll give you an example. Nuclear weapons. I was at Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is a nuclear weapons lab. And uh, we're looking at a number of things. And as country, other countries were developing, this was late, I think maybe 90s, looking at countries kind of stumbling around. And our, our scientists were looking and said, that makes no sense whatsoever. You know, why in the world are they doing that? And they went to Gordon Sumner, who had hired many of the original nuclear scientists that worked on it, they go, oh yeah, that's what we did. In other words, you had to go through this process. You couldn't just jump out to the end product. The, the process, you know, the journey is important. A question from Bob McGuire. Bob attended the SCU event that you were part of recently, and he mentions Eric Davis uh, was uh, someone you spoke to apparently outside for around 20 minutes. And Bob mentions, what was Eric upset about? And is that a conversation you can shed any light on? Um, what was he upset about? I don't know. I, I'll give Bob a call if you want 
that's one you can get filled in on potentially later on. Um, looked a very interesting event with a lot of very interesting players at that event as well. I saw the, the pictures online and I would love to get over to one of those myself in, in the future. Um, the next question, John, it's a little bit of a longer one, so bear with me, but I've got some context behind it. This is from James Iandoli uh, from Engaging the Phenomena channel. And he's asked if I can ask you about the alleged Stephen Greer Stubblebine meeting or encounter at the 1992 TREAT event. And a TREAT event is treatment and research into experienced anomalous trauma. Um, James has a, a post on his YouTube channel about this. People can check out. Um, on that, there's claims that several intelligence community officials, including yourself, spoke to Dr. Greer in a hotel room and he was offered either millions of dollars up front or access to this money for funding, but it couldn't go public. Um, you commented on the video yourself on YouTube, actually, around seven months ago, saying the event happened, but the rest is BS. Uh, and follow up to James asking if a private <laughs> meeting did happen with Dr. Greer. Um, can you confirm this or not? What I confirm is I did say it was bullshit, and it, it absolutely is. Nobody offered him anything. We were kind of surprised. Bert Sumblebine was there. And um, I think this was one in Mesquite where he suddenly burst on the scene. Uh, I don't know of anybody who offered him a dime for anything. And thanks for that. And I uh, appreciate you listening to that longer question as well. And uh, the, thanks to James for sending it in. And final question from Eric. Uh, can you share any details of any servicemen or women being injured by UAP that you are aware of? Well, uh, easy answer would be no. The other, there's a case of, oh, what's the famous case? I think over Ohio where a uh, aircraft, this was fairly early on, but uh, did not have enough, you know, oxygen life support systems that went up there and supposedly went out of control and crashed and highly controversial as to what had caused that to crash, well, that certainly would be uh, a specific example. Um, I guess one of the things I would recommend to people interested in following up, um, particularly from Skinwalker Ranch, and one of the big issues has been the hitchhiker effect. And other words, people have been, now, I will say I have not had that problem, but I do know several people who have. Uh, now, if you could, well, it's not directly UFOs, but I would recommend uh, Skinwalkers in the Pentagon. There's a book that uh, McCaskey, Colin Kelleher, and George Knapp wrote. I'll hold that one up for, uh, for people who are watching. Yeah. yeah, that's the one, yeah. And uh, I had a chance to talk to Axelrod and uh, you know, the thing. Now, now, I'll give you the downside of where that all goes. People don't realize they talk about the UAP program in the Pentagon and, you know, the incidents with the various carrier groups. All true and straightforward. This program, well, OSAP, 
really started uh, because of uh, George McCollum's earlier book, uh, Hunt for the Skidwalker. In other words, they were looking for creepy crawlers. So it was not restricted to, uh, you know, looking for UFOs per se. I think from a political perspective, this is very, very dangerous. Again, the, the political ramifications are, say, uh, you want to fund money to hunt werewolves? And again, you get from, if I were in opposition research, I'd say, you know, Marco wants to uh, fund fund werewolf studies, and he, he won't fund uh, children's health. Uh, so pick whatever the issue. That, that one actually comes from signs in Florida uh, that were down there because of, you know, so again, it's a zero-sum game. Uh, what is it that you're going to study? I find it very interesting. Again, I think it belongs in, in the civilian sector, and that's certainly what uh, Brandon is doing. Um, kind of, that's kind of rambling, I guess. <laughs> the answer, I mean, the short answer is I don't know of anybody who's been burned, but we do know of people, and Kip has looked at, I think, around 300 now of people who've had, but this is from interactions you know, the secondary and tertiary effects, if you will, as opposed to I got burned by UFOs. And there are cases of individuals who have had radiation burn. Uh, the most classic, I think, is Cash Landro. Uh, if you go back to 1980, uh, absolutely happened. Their, their story is highly credible in that they, uh, the amount of radiation, uh, the damage, physical damage that occurred to them is directly proportional to the uh, you know, their study. In other words, uh, Cash got out, got in front of the car. She had whole body radiation. Died from leukemia later. Uh, Landrum was behind the door. Didn't get as much. Cody, the little boy, got brief things. saying, ran around, jumped back, and those two who were shielded had less radiation. So that they were physically exposed to some radiation is absolutely certain. Um, but the helicopters weren't ours. I can also guarantee that. John, it's been a fascinating discussion with you, and I've appreciated your time. You've been very, very generous. And again, thank you for, for rescheduling. There was a whole lot of questions I was sent over that I never got to. So hopefully in the near future, we can we can get to those at some point and get those answered as well, if you would do me the honour. Um, John, just before we finish up, is there anything you're working on at the moment? That uh, Have you got any more books coming out or any appearances coming up you can let anyone know of? No, really. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm very concerned about where the world's going at the moment, I think that uh, American democracy is in deep trouble and, you know, where this all goes. And good luck with Boris and uh, follow on there in the UK. Yeah, I was going oh, to say, we, we can't comment in the UK at the minute about anyone's political state, <laughs> given what's going on here. So it's... Uh... Yeah. It's um it's all a bit of a mess all worldwide, but at least we've got the UFO subject to talk about to to take our minds off something else for a while. But John, again, thank you very much for your time.
That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Folk. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little more Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. And I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was wet. I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And I think I should because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think I'd be, I guess you and me and us and we and him and her and that and she and that thing over there and what's that, Jay?